Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 as we come back to a study of this model prayer that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples. We know it as the Lord's Prayer, and uh, it gives us a brief yet profound example or pattern or paradigm to follow in our own prayer. It addresses many of the things which make our prayers inefficient or ineffectual, we might say. Jesus, of course, is giving this prayer in um, contrast, uh, or we might even say in direct assault against the meaningless and useless prayers of the Gentiles. He mentions them in verse 7, those Gentiles who heap up phrases, empty phrases, mindless prayer, full of repetitive and empty words that they believe will somehow uh, uh, affect their cause just simply because of the sheer amount or length of their prayers. But this is more than just an assault on those Gentile pagan prayers. This is an assault on every petty prayer. It's an assault on small prayers, not small in the sense of short prayers, but small in the sense of their view of God and small in their sense of of their understanding of how our communion with God operates. He offers this model prayer in contrast to all of that stuff that goes on in religious circles, whether it's pagan circles or Christian circles, whether it is in the ancient world or the modern world. He, he offers all of this to help you and I understand what it is to have meaningful, deep, rich, effectual communion and interaction with God. He, he gives us this to help us understand what God desires when we bow our heads and close our eyes, when we take time alone with the Lord in secret. He gives us this prayer that gives us a clear outline of the kind of things God's looking for in prayer, the kind of things that make our prayers and our prayer life effective. And ultimately, He gives us this to help us understand prayer that is focused on God, not on ourselves. Whether it is those mindless, meaningless, petty prayers, those empty phrases that are offered up by us to, uh, at the end of the day, make ourselves feel good, to make ourselves feel religious, to make ourselves feel like we have accomplished something, or whether it is just simply the outright self-focused, self-centered request that we offer up, which are really nothing more than, um, than hopeful wishes, but haven't really been refined in the furnace of God's truth, melting away all of the dross so that it can come out as precious stone, precious metal, something acceptable and and, uh, worthy of God. Against all of those things that undermine our prayer, that pollute our prayer, we have this model prayer given to us by Jesus. And what he teaches here comes out of a profound understanding of God's will in prayer, 
but it also comes out of an intimate experience in prayer by Jesus himself. He was a man, you remember, who we're told rose every morning, early in the morning, and he would go out in the evening to the Mount of Olives and such, and he would spend hours himself in prayer. So this is a model prayer from the master of prayer. And what he's giving us here are those elements that ought to shape our prayers to be pleasing and to be effectual before the Lord. Well, the first one of those elements we took some time looking at last week, and that is our relationship. When Jesus talks about our Father in heaven, he begins his model prayer by addressing God as our Father in heaven. It's a statement of personal relationship, uh, it's something intended to communicate a level of intimacy with God. It focuses on what we might call God's eminence or God's nearness or God's closeness or the confidence that, that uh, we should have in our prayers because of that closeness, the sense of, of tenderness and affection that we should feel from the God of the universe. It emphasizes that while we might at times be tempted to think of God as aloof or maybe even unapproachable, He's like a father to us. There should be no fear in our hearts of approaching Him, no sense of dread, nothing but confident assurance that God will forever love us. And so prayer begins this way, Jesus says, with a reflection on the kindness and the graciousness of God who has brought Himself, or I should say brought us near to Him through the cross of Christ. We reflect on that deep, deep closeness, and yet we recognize the profound, transcendent nature and character and holiness of who God is, which is the second element Jesus shows us here that shapes our prayers. And not only do we have that kind of relationship but we also have a reverence. When we pray, our focus should not only be on the eminence of God, calling Him our Father, but equally, simultaneously, it ought to be on His transcendence. And this is what Jesus intends for us as He teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. The word is hagiadzo, which basically means holy. Holy is your name, which is a word for being separate. It's a word for being set apart, which is in some ways the opposite of closeness. It's the opposite of, of eminence and nearness. It communicates something that's high above, something that goes beyond. And to pray that God's name be hallowed is to pray in a recognition of the separateness of God. The holiness of His character. Not that we're praying that God would become holy. That would be a needless prayer because it's already true. God is holy. He is righteous. He is set apart from sin and set apart from everything finite. But this just is a prayer that recognizes those truths, that draws attention to His holiness, it contemplates it. Jesus is 
calling us to begin our prayers then with a declaration of God's holy name in the sense of a recognition of his character, his, his name. When you talk about someone having a good name, what we mean is that there's something about their character that elicits praise and respect and honor. And Jesus is calling us to prayer that lifts our thoughts out of this world and into his throne room to gaze, if you will, upon his character and his nature. And of course, we, we do that, or we're able to do that, only in as much as we know God, which means, of course, that we have come to believe in God, we've come to trust in Him, but even beyond that, that we've come to understand Him by His revealed Word. And so we meditate on His Word, we meditate on His character, on His works, we come to know Him, we come to understand Him, we hold Him up in our minds, we frame His character and His works for contemplation, And it's only then, as we do all of that, that we're ready to bring our cares and requests and burdens and supplications to Him. John Calvin says this, Though this is the most important exercise of piety, yet in in forming our prayers and regulating our wishes, all our senses fail us. No man will pray aright unless his lips and heart shall be directed to the heavenly master. What's he saying here? Calvin is saying that we can't really even properly offer our supplications. We can't even properly offer our requests unless we are offering them to the true God of the Scripture, the true heavenly master who is able and capable of answering our prayers. D.A. Carson says, true prayer brings the mind to the immediate contemplation of God's character and holds it there until the believer's soul is properly impressed. This is absolutely essential. This is what Jesus understands about prayer. This is why he, he places this here for us at the beginning of this model prayer so that we can understand the, in, in the, the essence or the essential nature of this kind of transcendent view of God in prayer. Without it, to pray without this kind of transcendent view is to pray to a God who's not worthy of your trust. He's not worthy of your adoration. He can't do anything about your circumstances. He's too weak or he's not good enough. He's too flawed He's too unreliable, he's too questionable, or whatever it might be, to be the focus of your prayers. But of course, none of those things are true, right? When we truly frame the the holiness of God's name in our minds, these are the things which generate effectual prayer. This is why, as we even noted a little bit last week, this is why you see so many of the great prayers in Scripture that are focused on God's name and God's character and God's attribute. So many modeled prayers for us throughout biblical passages, devoted prayers that begin with significant portions or are completely devoted to God's 
profound goodness or God's inexhaustible grace or God's flawless character or, or, or His, or his uh, unsearchable wisdom. And so one of the key elements of fervent prayer is the rehearsing of God's greatness and the greatness of His character, the rejoicing in the fact that this great and transcendent God is our Father whom we can approach. Now, another way to think about this, rather than just sort of that raw definition or description, another way to think about this is that prayer, properly understood, is consumed with God and not with ourselves. It is all about confirming and affirming God, not ourselves. True prayer, like true worship, begins, ends, and centers on God's glory, not on our needs. Ian Bounds, in his little book, The Purpose of Prayer, says the best when he says, prayer honors God, it dishonors self. That's, what he, that's really where we are when we are going before the Lord. We are there honoring Him to our own dishonor. We're there exalting Him to our own debasement. We're there transferring our trust from our flawed wisdom and our flawed efforts to His flawless character and His absolute power. You'll notice, by the way, here the passive sense of the verb, hallowed be your name. Jesus isn't suggesting that we're making God holy or that we're giving any glory to God. God's name, His character is inherently holy. It is inherently glorious. What we're doing is simply recognizing or taking notice of the excellency in everything that he does. Whatever, whether we like what he does or not, whether we would choose to do it the same way he would do it or not, whether or not we would uh, uh, sort of construct the world or dictate the circumstances the way that he does is, is immaterial. We are there to affirm that his ways... And His name and His character is holy. It is inherent to who He is. And we begin by recognizing that. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, God's, uh, God hath life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself, nor deriving any glory from His creatures, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, and unto, and upon them. In other words, God's name is holy. God's name is glorious inherently. It is that way, whether we like it, whether we want to admit it, whether we're willing to shower it on Him or not, it is that way. Our role then is prayer, in prayer is just simply to acknowledge that. The Westminster Catechism responding to the Confession of Faith says that what is required of us is to, quote, know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify Him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, and fearing Him. 
as well as calling upon Him and giving all praise and thanks to Him with the whole person. End quote. This is really what Jesus is describing for. This is the first step in prayer. It is coming to Him, of course, in belief, but then believing that He's not only the only God, but that His gospel is true, that we're guilty before Him, that He provided for, then accepted the sacrifice of His Son on the cross on behalf of our forgiveness, and then accepting that all His ways are just and right and good and perfect and holy. And so we approach God making that statement or those meditations, I should say, making this honoring and glorification of His name and His character as our main goal. Our main goal. In fact, you, we should remember that God Himself has as His main goal His own glory. You remember Jesus as He entered into Jerusalem for the crucifixion in John chapter 12. He stops and He prays, Father, glorify Your name. And a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. In other words, God is acknowledging in response to the prayer of Christ, He's acknowledging that the chief goal and aim of everything He's doing is His own glory because this is the chief goal and aim of all creation. It is only sensible, since there could be no more perfect, noble, and satisfying goal, but God's glory to magnify His wisdom, to affirm His character, to to acknowledge that all His ways are right and good. This is what God's all about. And so we're coming and aligning ourselves, if you will, with God's purpose in prayer. In fact, if you miss this aspect of prayer, if this is not something that fills your prayer, that, that... is the foundation of your prayer. If this is not where you begin your thoughts, and you're short-circuiting your prayer right off the start. If you haven't spent significant effort and time deeply thinking about the character of God and the God whom you are approaching, then you have starved out the devotional character of your life. Because what sustains prayer life is communion with God by the constant reflection on the profound nature of His character and His ways and His wisdom. Remember, this whole exercise Jesus told us is not to really inform God of anything. He already knows, Jesus told us, He already knows what we need before we even ask Him. So the whole sort of exercise of prayer is not primarily about transferring information about your desires and your needs. It is to come to know God and His character more and more and to trust it. So to view prayer as simply reciting a request without a proper reciting of God's character is a real bypass to prayer, to douse the fire of fervency in prayer. 
And so prayer must begin with this contemplation of God's, God's holiness. A contemplation of His intimacy for sure. A contemplation of His eminence and His nearness. But framed, if you will, simultaneously or alongside of His greatness, His excellency, His holiness of character. And then thirdly, a third element that Jesus highlights here that ought to shape our prayers is the concern for His kingdom. You'll see it right there in verse 10. Your kingdom come. All this obviously flows quite naturally out of the contemplation of God's perfect nature and God's perfect wisdom. God's perfect character. I mean, we cannot help We cannot help when we are thinking about those things, but to set them in contrast to all that is imperfect around us. Everything that we see faltering and failing around us and disappointing around us, we cannot help but contrast all of God's perfections with the imperfections of the world. The weakness and the confusion, the fallenness and the disappointment, the injustice and the oppression. Everything that we see around us, we cannot help but contrast it this kingdom of darkness, if you will, that surrounds us every day with the coming perfect kingdom of our Savior. Understanding God's greatness, we cannot help but want to have His greatness finally seen and admired by all. And so, it is the natural consequence of Christian prayer that we would plead to see God's kingdom established, His rule and reign on the earth. And so we pray for His kingdom to come. Now, it's important that we note what Jesus is saying here, what He's not saying. He's not saying to pray that God's kingdom would grow. Throughout Matthew, Jesus uses that term in relation to the kingdom. He talks about, for example, in the parables of Matthew 13, he uses a number of images for God's kingdom in terms of agriculture. He pictures the kingdom growing. In other places, he speaks of the kingdom spreading or even going, the kingdom going forth. In a very real sense, when we preach the gospel, we are preaching the kingdom of God. We are declaring it. We are speaking about the rule and the reign of Christ. We're speaking about His glorious return. And in that sense, we are spreading the, the seed of the kingdom. We're spreading the message of the kingdom. We're declaring the kingdom to the corners of the earth. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about the kingdom growing or the kingdom spreading or even the kingdom going. He doesn't refer to any of that, although it's certainly a worthy thing for us to pray about. In other places, Jesus even tells us, pray to the Lord of the harvest, that He would send out laborers into the harvest. So it's certainly needed that we would pray for the kingdom to spread through evangelistic efforts, through the preaching of the gospel and the good news. But that is not what Christ has in mind here. When he speaks about the kingdom coming, he is thinking about the eschatological arrival of Christ in his millennial kingdom. This is the kingdom that becomes our ultimate hope. 
that subsumes all of our short-term and petty desires with the long-term, eternal, rich desires of God's glory being manifested through His kingdom on the earth. All of our petty requests diminish, really, in the light of our deepest desire, which is to see God wipe away all the stuff that surrounds us and establish His kingdom forever. And if you truly are taken up with the perfections and the beauty of God's holiness, if you truly are taken up with seeing the the perfections of His wisdom, then His kingdom finally arriving will be your preoccupation. You will think about all the things which will be so perfect when it arrives, all the things that you long to see happen, all the things that you long to do. They are not wrapped up in your next temporal request. They are not wrapped up in your next sort of a professional achievement or your next relational achievement. They're not wrapped up in any of that temporary stuff. The things which are deepest in the heart of a Christian are the things that are concerned the most with the glory of God, and they are accomplished most beautifully and most perfectly upon His arrival in His kingdom. So that's what's in your heart. You're consumed much more with His kingdom than you are with any kingdom on this earth. Any reign, any power, any authority, you're consumed with the glory of Christ. Swept away in the hope and anticipation of it. You're eager to see Him seated on His throne. You're eager to see the world bowing and confessing and adoring and acknowledging His wisdom and greatness. And along with it, all of our desires for progress, all of our desires for community, all of our desires for the fullness of joy, all of our desires are finally fulfilled under His reign. Now, this is what has filled genuine and meaningful Christian prayer from the very time the Lord departed from this earth. Paul, you remember, closes out the book of 1 Corinthians with a series of short prayers in the final couple of verses of that, having dealt extensively in 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians with all kinds of divisions and infighting and all of those things all those people who are undermining each other or in some cases even undermining the gospel. And he comes and he says at the very end, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. And then he adds this little phrase, Maranatha, or more, actually a Maranatha is probably the better way to pronounce that. It's an Aramaic phrase. Interestingly, written to a Greek church. Uh, Not someone from the Middle East, but someone from Greece, someone who didn't even speak Aramaic. And yet yet Paul uses this phrase and leaves it untranslated because it would have been understood by all of them because they would have heard it so many times. Over and over again, they would have heard this prayer repeated. They would have heard this Maranatha, our Lord come. 
It was familiar enough to them. It was common enough for them. Because the Jewish Christians who founded their church would have prayed this all the time. Come, O Lord. Our Lord, come. And with the coming of the Lord would be the coming of His kingdom. Your kingdom come. Revelation 22 ends the whole book, the whole Bible. In verse 20, where the Lord saying, He who testifies these things says... Surely I am coming soon. And John responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. 2 Peter 3. Peter says, Since all these things, there he's talking about the world and everything that we see in it. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for... And hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they are burned. But according to His promise, we, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter says we're waiting for these things. We have the anticipation for these things. We're watchful for them. He uses the word hastening, which kind of adds to this this idea of eager desire. You can't wait. If you were a little child, you you remember the anticipation for Christmas morning, right? You you see all that sort of uh, those those gifts, perhaps wrapped under the tree, and you're just anticipating the day when you get to tear into all that stuff. As you mature through the years, you have all these other sort of goals, all these other aspirations, all of these other endeavors that you're working on and you're anticipating, you're thinking, is consuming your thoughts. Well, Peter says, this is who we are as Christians. We are eagerly waiting, eagerly desiring, not that next temporal achievement, but we are eagerly desiring this arrival, waiting for the new heavens and the new earth the new world, the new universe. Not new simply just in terms of chronology to say that it is the next thing linearly in what the Lord will create. But it is new in terms of its quality. It will be unlike anything you or I have ever experienced on this earth. It's a kingdom that Peter characterizes in verse 13 as one in which righteousness dwells. It dwells there. The word is the word for home. Righteousness is at home there. It it, it is comfortable. It finds a comfortable place to settle down, a comfortable place to be, a welcoming place where it takes up permanent residence. It's a new world where righteousness is not an unwelcomed stranger, not looked at as a foreign intruder, but righteousness is welcomed. And the reason it's this way is because the Lord is reigning over this world. When He comes, He establishes a kingdom. He reigns over it. The sun 
Isaiah 60, Isaiah 60, verse 19 says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor brightness shall, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended." Your people shall all be righteous. This is the kingdom that he's talking about, the kingdom that he's repeatedly talked about throughout the, uh, throughout the pages of Scripture from the very beginning, this promised kingdom that we're waiting for. Isaiah 11 speaks about the righteous Messiah King who will reign on the earth at that point. It says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will judge not by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So it only makes sense if in your prayer you have approached God and contemplated all of these wonderful things about God. He is righteous. He is faithful. He judges not based on what the eye sees or the ear hears, but he judges based on righteousness and truth. He delights in the fear of the Lord. He hears the cause of the meek. He attends his ear to the lowly. It's only right if you're beginning your prayer and thinking about all these things about God, it's only, it only makes sense that you would then have to contrast how that does not take place around us today. How that is not the world that you and I live in. How it's not the way that our leaders lead. It's not the way that they govern. It's not the interest that they have. And you begin to long to see that kind of a world and that kind of a government and that kind of an uh, of a, uh, of a, uh, execution, if you will, of righteousness and justice. It only makes sense that if you're hallowing God's name and character, that you would then long for His kingdom. To see it fully happen. But of course, you know it won't happen until Christ returns. And He establishes His kingdom on the earth. And so it becomes the natural extension of your prayer that you begin to pray, Lord, bring your kingdom. Let it come. The same could be said for the fourth element that Jesus shows us here that shapes our prayers and makes our prayer life effectual, which is the issue of submission. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the second half of verse 10. It makes sense if you've now elevated God's holy name and God's holy character and God's holy works in your mind. If you've begun to contemplate what a glorious day it's going to be when His kingdom finally does arrive. 
that you long for His rule and His reign, it only makes sense that you would then yield to and submit to His sovereignty and His wisdom and His will and His plan for your life. And that's what this element of prayer gets at. Submission to the commandments of God and to the will of God. Which, of course, implies, when you're talking about submission, it implies some measure of resistance or some measure of struggle. It implies a real sense that God's will may not always be done that, that there is some resistance, obviously, on the part of those who would deny God, who reject His glory and reject His word. They naturally defy His commands and refuse to acknowledge His sovereignty. But then there's also, of course, resistance in our own hearts, an unwillingness to follow His commands, a refusal to trust Him in our troubles, a, a dislike for His sovereign rule over our circumstances. And this prayer, or this element of prayer, gets at the heart of all that. Effective prayer is submissive prayer. Too many of us are submissive to the wrong things. We are submissive to the world and its ways. We see everything around us and everything that emanates from a God-denying and God-defying system of the world, a belief structure, the presuppositions that begin and end with man and with his own gratification, his own glory. We see all of that stuff and we wind up just capitulating to it We get a sense that it is on one hand either too painful or on the other just useless to try to stand against it. And so we yield to, we capitulate to, we submit to it in the end. But God-honoring prayer, effectual prayer, is a battle cry against all of that stuff. You're saying to God, no, your will be done. Everything around me is working against that. Everything around me is moving against that. But my cry is that your will, that your your plan, that your goodness, that your commands, everything that is consistent with your character, that that be done. And so you end up rejecting every scheme, every idea that is at odds with God's righteousness, and you reject every agenda that operates against His purposes, and you yield yourself to Him. We go to God, we say to Him, we know that everything in heaven is operating in the beauty of holiness. We know that everything in heaven is operating according to Your will. We also know that everything on earth is not according to your will. And we want to be like heaven. We want to be like its citizens, like its angels. And so we don't accept, we don't capitulate, we don't yield to whatever the world is calling us to, its thought life, its structures 
its, its categories, its philosophies. We don't yield to its sinful habits. We know that none of that is the design as God has constructed the world. It's not what He wants. It's not what He plans. It's not the way He wants to leave the world. And so you begin to plead with Him to make His will manifest on the earth. And you yield to Him to do that in your life. This is, this is not just sort of passive resignation, sort of deterministic fatalism where you're saying, well, you know, God's obviously way stronger than I am and uh, there's nothing I can do to change whatever's going on around me. So God, just whatever you want, that's fine. That's, just get on with it. That's not what this is about. This flows out of a sense of appreciation, a sense of worship, a sense of recognition of God and His perfect, uh, perfect wisdom. The meditation and contemplation of the beauty of His character. And so you recognize that God's will expressed both in His commands and also in His sovereign control over your circumstances only accomplishes what is most excellent, most worthy of praise, most beneficial to those who love Him. Now you could take that theme, obviously, and you could, you could spend weeks talking about it. But in terms of prayer, I think we could spend our last few moments this morning just contemplating one penetrating example of this to help us understand how this affects our prayer life. And it's the prayer of our Savior, particularly as He was wrestling through the issue of God's will on the eve of the crucifixion. When we find Him in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, It says, Jesus went with the disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here you see him praying exactly the way he told us to pray. My Father, that sort of idea of intimacy. His soul, we're told, was sorrowful even to the point of death. He was in these unbearable circumstances that were literally crushing him, killing him hour by hour and moment by moment. And yet no matter how dire his circumstances, he didn't allow them to rip him away from a sense of his father's love and the intimacy that he has with his father. He didn't let it cause him to distrust God. And so he says, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He's wrestling. He's saying, if, there, if it's possible to do this any other way, I would that's where my desires are. That's where my, my impulses, I should say, are. But if not, I yield myself to your divine plan. At no point really ever does he want to avoid God's plan. 
his, his speaking of some other way isn't because he wants anything other than God's plan. He's simply acknowledging before God the agony that he feels in his heart to go forward with what God has designed, which is the reality for all of us, that God's designs and God's plans do not always lead down the pathway of ease. In fact, many times they don't. They're costly. They're painful. And when we are in the sort of vice and the grip of that, and we're feeling the intense pain of it, it is a part of our prayer life that we yield ourselves up to God the way that Christ is yielding Himself up to, him, uh, up to God. He's saying, if this cup could pass from me, cup is a frequent reference in Scripture to the divine judgment of God, the wrath of God, and Christ is talking about having to drink, if you will, experientially from that cup. And He would wish to escape it if there was any other way. All of this just simply indicating that he fully understands. He fully understands what is in front of him. That he's going to the cross. That there will be no last minute rescue. That he's going to suffer not only the humiliation before the world and the creation that he has made but he's going to experience the alienation from God under God's wrath as he takes on the penalty for our sins. So he says, if there's any other way it could be done, if there's any other way, let it be. But if not, whatever you will. He trusted God. He comes back in verse 40 to his disciples. And then we're told in verse 42, he goes back a second time to pray. And this time he prays, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. First time he says, if it can pass. Now he says, well, if it can't pass, your will be done. If it can't pass, then I'll do it. And you get a sense through this prayer that he's being strengthened. He's being strengthened in his resolve to the will of God. And in verse 44, it comes a third time, and Matthew says he prays the same thing a third time. It's a beautiful picture. Strong, agonizing supplication before the Lord to the point of death. We're told that sweat became like drops of blood as his capillaries were bursting and blood was oozing through his pores. And yet with every round of prayer, he's getting stronger and stronger for the fight. Holding to the will of God against all circumstances. That's how the Lord's Prayer, that's how the model prayer operates. You line up with what God wants to do. You line yourself up with whatever God wants to do, and then you say, no matter what the price, 
Your will be done. Believing that because of God's character and His nature, the perfection of all His attributes, God only gives what is best. He only gives what is best. And so all independence, all self-mastery, all autonomy, all self-determination is obliterated at the point of repentance. And you end with nothing but selfless dependence. A far greater goal overwhelms you, which is to see God's name and His wisdom exalted. You begin to say, as Jesus says in John 4, 34, my food is is to do the will of Him who sent me. That's all I want. No longer the king of my own life. No longer the sovereign of my own circumstances. My ambitions, after all the petty goals that were before me, are subsumed now under this far greater goal of my king. Listen, if prayer is anything, this is it. It is the exaltation of God and the diminishing of yourself. That's what it is. It's in all these expressions. People flip that around on their head. They they make it as if God is somehow their sort of cosmic servant. Just there to sort of hear them rattling off their wish list of items. As if he's supposed to respond to their every whim. And Jesus is telling us the exact opposite. When you're coming to God, you are exalting his wisdom and his character. You are longing for his reign and his manifest glory. And ultimately, you're submitting to his will. All of this, of course, begins with the prayer of salvation. A recognition that your own ways, your own choices, your own behavior has wrecked your life. You confess your foolishness and your sin, and you plead with God for forgiveness, even as you yield to His wisdom. You bow your knee to Him as your King. And you confess that he deserves your every trust. In fact, your whole life. Your whole life. And you take up your cross and follow him. Well, more elements to come as Jesus teaches us how to pray. Helps us to understand what effectual prayer looks like. And we'll get to that in the coming weeks. Well, let's stand together. We'll be closed today simply with a prayer and no song. But bow your heads together with me. If you're here this morning and prayer's been nothing to you but just sort of a superstition, but here you come to understand that it is communion with the Creator and King of this universe. If you understand that this morning, our challenge to you is that you would pray a prayer of confession. That you would tell him of your waywardness. 
Ask Him for His forgiveness. Bow your knee and heart before Him and give your heart to Christ. That's the first and most important prayer, the prayer that God always hears. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He hears that prayer, and just like He'll make a new heaven and a new earth one day, He'll begin today by giving you a new heart and a new life. Father, we're grateful for the power of your name, the majesty of your character and goodness. We're so grateful today to know that when we bow before you, we put our trust in a God whose wisdom is unquestionable. Forgive us, Lord, when our petty schemes drive petty prayers. And we begin to forget what prayer is all about, your glory, your name. Not you glorified through our schemes, but us glorified through your plans. Lord, we yield ourselves to them again, no matter what it is. We say your will be done. And may your kingdom come. May you come and establish it. We long for it, Lord. Bring it to pass so that we, along with all creation, can exalt in the beauty of holiness and righteousness your character. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.